Good morning, everyone. My name is Nick Long. I'm one of the elders here at Faith. And I'd like to lead us in a time to remember the Lord in communion. In Matthew 6, 31 through 34, Jesus tells us this. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. If you were honest, <laughs> do any of these thoughts sound familiar? What about the kids? What, are, what about our parents? What about this relationship? What about that marriage? What about my test coming up? When am I going to get all this work done? What about my assignment? What about the house? What about the fatigue I feel? How will we make ends meet? How will we pay for this? It's easy to be distracted with fears and anxieties. In this passage, God tells us not to worry about all these things. As we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all things will be added. If you are lonely, seek first the kingdom of God. If you have big decisions to make, seek first the kingdom of God. If you're in despair, seek first the kingdom of God. The outcomes of comfort and contentment, peace and happiness, these are all results. They're byproducts of a heart that's surrendered to God. It's true that those good things are ours to have when we seek him, but they are not and cannot be in and of themselves what we seek first. God is whom we must seek first. We worry when we assume responsibility that God did not intend for us to have. Cast your burdens upon him and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. God knows our real needs. And this passage, he's in this passage, he's asking us to place our trust in him, uh, to pursue him and pursue his ways in dependence upon him. To trust that pursuing his kingdom and his righteousness will put our hearts in a place where wisdom and provision can flow into each decision that we make and into each of the circumstances that we face. This doesn't happen if we pursue our own agenda, no matter how good it seems to us. We won't think rightly about anything without his help. His ways are higher and his thoughts are wiser. Instead of fear, <laughs> can we seek God? Can we seek his kingdom and his righteousness? Seek it as if your life depended on it. Could we be most passionate about the thing that is most important? And God, God's kingdom is the range of his effective will. That's the place where God is at work the place where his will is actually being done. Oh Lord, let your kingdom be manifested in every area of our lives, that your will would be done on earth, right here, right in our hearts, as it is in heaven. 
And in intimacy with him, he leads us to the very best in life, Christ's life in us. We will not miss out on anything by following him. His ways are the best ways, and he came that we would have abundant life. As we seek him in humility, we say things like, where are you at work, God, that I could be a part of it? How would you handle this situation? How would you lead me? What would you do if you were me? We're desperate for your help, God. Truly seeking him opens a clear path with the easy yoke and the light burden. Isn't it sweet to do right by God and to love his righteousness? It's what we are meant for. As we enjoy the Lord's table today, I encourage you to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And as, as I've said in the last few services, the, the communion wafers are not pumpkin spice flavored. So, <laughs> but the sweetness, but how sweet are your words uh, to my taste, O Lord. Uh, there is so much sweetness in the pursuit of him and the fellowship that results from it. It's the only thing that brings peace to our souls. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, please simply hold off on taking the elements. But I would encourage you to meditate on the, the life and the work and the words of Jesus and consider asking him to reveal himself to you in faith. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Jesus, please purify our souls by obedience to the truth. It is eternal life that we know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Amen. Today, Steve will continue our series on wisdom. Uh, since he will be giving an overview of the entire book of Job, I will be reading the opening paragraph of Job in chapter 1 and the closing two paragraphs of Job in chapter 42. So if you are able, please stand as we read. This is Job 1, 1, ver 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. These were uh, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. 
And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 explains how Job suffered the loss of everything God had given him. And I will next read from Job 42 how God God restored Job's prosperity. So Job 42, 10 through 17. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 16,000 camel, camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of his first daughter, Jemima, and the name of his second, Keziah, and the name of his third, Kirin Habak. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. This is God's word. Please be seated. Nick, and good morning to all of you. Some of you are familiar with the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It was written in, it was published in 1981. It was written by Rabbi Harold Kushner. And this book was born out of Kushner's own suffering and out of his own reflection on scripture. And his suffering involved his son, his son had a rare, uh, a rare uh, genetic disorder that caused him to age very rapidly and very prematurely. And so his son actually died of old age when he was 14 years old. And so he wrote this book to help other people navigate their suffering. And in this book, Kushner makes extensive reference to the book of Job, which we'll be considering today. But strangely, actually it's, it's really bizarre, Kushner concluded from the book of Job that God is compassionate, but he's weak. He concludes that God's heart goes out to us in the middle of our suffering, and he longs for us to get some relief, but he's not powerful enough to do anything about it. As an aside, Elie Wiesel, who was the Holocaust survivor, his comment about Kushner's view of God, he said, if that's who God is, why doesn't he resign and let someone more competent take his place? Well, Kushner's conclusion that God is compassionate but weak, it illustrates how tempting it is for all of us in the midst of our suffering to bring our own logic, to bring our own thoughts, to bring our own wisdom 
to our suffering and to scriptures, especially the book of Job. As we're going to see, Job teaches anything but the idea that God is weak. And so instead of imposing our reasoning on the book of Job, we need to come to the book of Job humbly and honestly. And we need to listen to what Job says. And so we need to be content with the, the questions that the book of Job answers, and we need to be content with the questions that the book of Job leaves unanswered. And there are many questions in Job that are unanswered. But I'm going to argue that Job is first and foremost about fearing God in the midst of suffering. It's about fearing God in the midst of suffering, especially innocent suffering, when you're not suffering because you're guilty of something. So I suspect that every single person here is either present tense, suffering something very tragic and very painful, or you are close to someone who is suffering something very tragic and very painful. Perhaps you're where Kushner was. Perhaps you're asking all the why questions. God, why am I suffering? Uh, God, how long will I be suffering? Why aren't you rescuing me? Why aren't you giving, giving me any relief from my suffering? Well, today as I give an overview of the book of Job, I would invite you to bring your suffering into the presence of the Lord and bring it to the book of Job. The book of Job doesn't answer every question we have, but it does show us something that's of infinite value. It shows us how to fear God, and therefore how to become wise in the midst of our suffering. And if you become wise, if you genuinely become wise in the midst of your suffering, it will be more more satisfying than you can imagine. And so I'm going to give an overview. There's four main sections where Job can be broken down very clearly into four sections. And at the end of each section, I'm going to talk about one takeaway from that section. So we begin with the prologue, and it describes how Job, a prosperous man who feared the Lord, he suffered catastrophic loss. As Nick read earlier, we read this, Job is introduced in 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. He was one who feared, who feared God and turned away from, from evil. And so that is a classic description of someone uh, who, of a wise person in the book of Proverbs. <clears throat> We're told the very first verse there that Job was right, wise and he feared God. We're next told that Job is prosperous in, in every way that mattered. And so he was prosperous materially. He had hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of livestock. <clears throat> We're told that he has 10 children. And so Job is experiencing the blessing that is promised to those who fear the Lord. Proverbs 22.4, for example, reads, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. And so that's what Job was experiencing. He was a man who feared the Lord and he was rewarded for it. And like most parents... I dare say all parents here in the room, Job cared about his kids more than anything else. And Job was so pious that he had in his mind that what if my kids 
inadvertently, unknowingly curse God. And so he, he took sacrifices when his kids got together to feast. He made sacrifices on their behalf in case they had cursed God in their hearts. Well, verses 6 through 12 in Job 1 describe one of the most fascinating scenes in all of the Bible. The Lord, the God of Israel, he convenes a gathering of his inner circle of uh, inner circle of angels. Sometimes it's called the the uh, heavenly or the divine council. And in the Bible, angels are uh, incredibly intelligent, powerful, beautiful, spiritual beings. Whereas we are created embodied, angels are created without a body. And so they're spiritual beings. And in the Bible, uh, God's Uh, angels in his inner circle are called the sons of God, indicating that God had a family in heaven before he had a family on earth. And as the sons of God presented themselves before him, another angel appeared. And this angel is called Satan. And that word simply means adversary, but this is an accuser or an adversary. And he had been roaming around on the earth. And God asks him this question in verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And sometimes we we, uh, say, God, why did you have to point out Job? But think about what's really happening here. The God of the universe, when he wants to, to defend his reputation, he wants to point out one person on the entire planet who got it when it came to fearing him and turning away from Israel, uh, from, turning away from, from uh, evil. He pointed to Job. And Satan's response is, well, of course Job fears you. It's because you've bought him off. Anybody with that prosperity would be loyal to you. Take away the hedge that's around him. Touch everything he has, and he will curse you to, his fa- to your face. Well, surprisingly, <clears throat> surprising to us anyway, God agreed to this wager. God told Satan, he said, uh, I'm taking down the hedge. He said, you can do anything you want to Job except one thing. You cannot touch his body. And so Satan went after him, and uh, what we read next is in, on, on one single day, four messengers came to Job with this news. And the first three told him, Job, your livestock and all your servants have either been stolen or killed. And then came the fourth messenger, and he had the most devastating news said, Job, all ten of your kids, they were feasting in, your, in the oldest brother's house. And a great wind came, and the house collapsed, and nobody survived. And then we read in Job 1, 20 and 21, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I have come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is the response of someone who feared God. 
that is somebody who understood who God is and he related to him as such. And so for Job, there was, there was no gap between his theology and how he related to God. And so he, his theology told him, everything I have has been given to me by God. Therefore, God has every right to take back what he's given to me. That's what he believed. And so that's how he treated him. God was worthy of his worship when he had prosperity. God was worthy of his worship when his prosperity was gone. So he fell to the ground and worshiped. And so the author pronounces this verdict in verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Satan had, won, had lost the wager in chapter one. And so in chapter two, we read that Satan comes back before God and Satan says, take away that one stipulation, touch his body, and then he will curse you to, his, to your face. Again, God agreed to the wager. And we read that Satan afflicted Job with sores from head to toe, and Job sat down in a heap of ashes, and he took a shard from a broken piece of pottery, and he scraped his, his sores with it for relief. And it's at this point that Job's wife enters the scene. And remember, she, she had experienced the same loss that Job did. She too had lost her 10 kids. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And so for her, God had crossed a line. God was no longer worthy of her worship. So she says, Job, God no longer deserves your integrity, your worship. And then unknowingly, she tells Job to do what Satan said he would do. She says, curse God and die. Now we can understand her anguish, right? Any of us would have that anguish, but that is a brutal thing to say to Job. Well, when you're wise, you recognize foolishness when you hear it. So in verse 10, but Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And so Job told her, he said, what you're saying is foolish. The God of the universe, it would be foolish to curse him. He's the one you bless. He's the one you worship. You don't curse him. And then again, the author pronounces this, and all this Job did not sin with his lips. And we come to the very end of chapter two and we read it, three of Job's friends come to visit him. We're told they come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. They wept with him, they mourned with him, and they sat with him in silence for seven days. And I don't know about you, but I have never devoted a week of my life to go and sit in silence with a friend who was suffering. But Job did. He showed up. His compassion was real. Now, if Job had cursed God, that would be the end of the story. God would have lost the wager. Satan would have been right about Job. But because he did fear the Lord, he responded with worship and faith. Things are going to get worse for Job before they get better. 
but because, and he's not going to do everything right, but because he feared the Lord, he ran toward God instead of running away from God. That was true when he was prosperous, and that was true when he was, was destitute. And so Job keeps coming back to God. Now what we find at the end of the book of Job is that his relationship with God was deeper. It was more substantive. He experienced more of God at the end of Job than he did at the beginning. And that is the takeaway for us as well. If we fear the Lord, our suffering can deepen our relationship with God. I've known people that have gone through incredible suffering and basically like Job's wife have said, I'm done. If this is how God treats his friends, I don't want to be God's friend. I've known other people who've gone through incredible suffering. I mean, suffering that would take your, your breath away. And some of you are in this room and you have feared the Lord and you've kept moving toward God and your relationship with God is deeper now than it was before you experienced catastrophic suffering, catastrophic loss. And so... The key here is, is to, to, to try to make the gap between our theology and how we relate to God as small as possible. So our theology tells us when we're suffering, God knows everything. God knows why I'm suffering. God knows how long I'm suffering. God knows everything about my suffering. That's what our theology says. Therefore, how do we relate to him? We relate to him as one who is brilliant as one who understands everything, one who's not clueless. He's not in the dark about anything I'm going through. And so I talk with him. I talk about him. I think about him in those terms. And Jesus reminded us of this in the Sermon on the Mount. He told his disciples, your father knows your needs before you ask. Therefore, ask. And so if we suffer in the fear of the Lord, our relationship with God will deepen. Many times we'll experience aspects of God's character that we just never thought about, that we overlooked in the past. Well, that's the end of the prologue. The next 35 chapters, count them, read them, 35 exhausting chapters record Job and his friends debating the reason for Job's suffering. Uh, There's profound things to learn there. They're rich, they're powerful, but it's painful because of what they express. In chapter 3, Job curses the day he was born. He didn't curse God, but he cursed that he was born. He said, it would have been better for me if I never existed than, uh, than having to live this life and go through the pain I'm experiencing now. And when Job's three friends heard this, they could not stay silent. At that point, they had to speak what they believed the truth was to him. And they took turns trying to convince God, trying to convince Job that the reason he's suffering is because he had sinned. Over and over in a dozen different ways, they try to convince Job that he's suffering because he had sinned. Now, we've read chapters 1 and 2. And so we know that that's not the case, but they were convinced that because Job was suffering, it indicated that he had sinned in some grievous way and God was punishing him. And it's important we understand the logic and the theology behind what Job's friends believed because this theology is alive and well in our day. 
Tremper Longman is an Old Testament scholar, and this is what, what he calls uh, retribution theology. And he would summarize it this way. If you sin, then you suffer. Therefore, if you are suffering, it's because you've sinned. You see the logic there? If you sin, God's going to punish you and you're going to suffer. Therefore, if you're suffering, trace it back. There's some sin that you've committed. Now, the book of Proverbs teaches that 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 is the case sometimes. Many times we do reap trouble because we've sown some sin. Uh, Proverbs numerous times says, the wicked, they, they lay a trap and they themselves fall into it. And so sometimes that's the case. But retribution theology says that that's always the case. And so Job's friends tried to convince him he was suffering because he had sinned. But over and over again, Job says, I haven't sinned. And he goes down this, this list, chapter 31, he says, I've never even coveted my neighbor's wife. He said, I've taken care of the poor, I've fed the, the hungry, and uh, I've looked out for the, the marginalized people. And so he, he says, I've not sinned, honest. But the significant thing is that Job actually believed retribution theology as well. He too understood, or he believed, that if you sin, you suffer. And that's where his crisis of faith came because he knew he, hasn't, he hadn't sinned. And so the only explanation, it's a devastating conclusion to come to, but Job comes to the conclusion that my suffering means that God is unjust. And so Job accuses God of being unjust in the way he was treating him. And before the Lord answers Job, a man named Elihu, who'd been listening to the conversation, he appears in chapter 32. And for six long chapters, he makes the same exact argument as Job's other friends made. Job is suffering because he sinned. And we'll see in a couple minutes that God tells Job that he, and by implication, his friends were speaking, quote, words without knowledge, unquote. They kept talking and talking and talking, even though they had no idea what they were saying. None of them understood that there had been this wager in the heavenly realm and that God's reputation was at stake. None of them understood that. Job's friends did not understand Job's heart, and Job didn't understand God's motives. And so there, there was this absolute lack of knowledge but there were words and words and words. And, and here's the takeaway for us, that when we're discussing suffering, we need to be careful to avoid multiplying words without knowledge. We need to be mindful not to do what Job's friends did. The way I think about it is here in this world, you and I, all of us, it's like we're, we're looking through we're looking through a, a cardboard tube, like the, the tube that uh, paper towels come in. You're looking through the tube, and that's all you can see. You can see right here. And we don't see all that this, this that's happening in the seen realm and in the unseen realm. And so we shouldn't be too confident. We shouldn't be arrogant in saying, this is what I see, therefore that's the reality I'm going to live by. 
And so one implication is that when people are suffering, generally speaking, they don't want us to show up and tell them, well, this is why you're suffering. This is, this is the reason. This is what's at stake. Or this is what God wants to teach you through this suffering. Or this is how you can repent and get rid of the suffering like that. Uh, there is a place for words. There, there are things that we might say in the right moment. But generally speaking, uh, the main thing people need is our presence, suffering silently with them. And when we think about our own suffering, we need to avoid the trap that Job fell into. We need to avoid saying, well, based on my logic, based on my experience, God, this, this, and this is true about you. Prove me wrong. And so we need to avoid multiplying words without knowledge. Well, God finally speaks in chapter 38, and uh, he responds to Job. And chapter 38 begins this way in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, whirlwind and said, and when God speaks out of a whirlwind, put on your seatbelt because it's going to be a rough, a rough ride, okay? And for the next four plus chapters, here's the tone of what God says. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And so again, Job had been speaking words and words and words, yet he lacked knowledge. It made perfect sense to him in light of his theology that he was convinced was so right. But we've read chapters 1 and 2, and we know that he's wrong. He doesn't understand the knowledge. His knowledge was very, very limited. He had been saying things about God that are not accurate. And so next we learn that God is not going to entertain questions from Job. God is going to ask questions to Job. Verse 3, he says, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And by my count, God asked Job 58 questions, 58 questions about the, the physical, visible, material universe, questions that Job had no answer to. It's to expose to Job, you don't understand the visible universe. How can you make these pronouncements about me and my wisdom in the unseen realm? And so again, God is, is, is putting Job in his place. And two times the Lord pauses and Job speaks. The first time is in chapter 40, and there he admits, I have no answer to these questions, so I'm going to be quiet. And then the next time at the very end of God's response to Job, we read that Job repented. He repented because he had said things about God that were not true. He had accused God of being unjust. And that's what wise people do. That's what God-fearing people do when they sin. If you fear God, it doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're sinless. It means when you sin, you move toward God. You own up to what you've done, what you've said. You repent. You learn from God how to think and do differently. And so it's significant to understand what God didn't do when he answered Job. Number one, he did not apologize to Job. Job, I'm sorry for what I let happen to you. God did not entertain Job's questions. Again, it's not that their questions are necessarily bad, but he did not answer his questions. 
And God didn't explain to Job a thing about his suffering. He convinced Job that he alone had knowledge about his suffering, that he alone was wise. And that's the big takeaway for us. Only God is wise. When we're in the midst of our suffering, it's so easy for us to, to take confidence in our logic, in our reasoning. We're tempted to conclude that we could run the, the universe a lot better than God does. And when that's the case, we need to go back to Scripture, humble and teachable, and we need to learn wisdom like Job did. Well, the epilogue is found in, in chapter 42, and we see the Lord restores Job's prosperity. But before he, he does that, he, uh, God deals with Job's three original friends. Uh, Elihu, he's just, he's forgotten. Uh, there's no mention of him. But the Lord tells these three men that he's angry with them because they had re- repeatedly spoken wrongly about him. They had said, God is punishing you because of some sin. And that was wrong. And so they needed to repent. And what he told them to do must have been very humbling. He says, I want you to go take animal sacrifices, offer them in the presence of Job. Basically, Job is now going to be your priest. And Job is going to pray for you. And I'm going to hear his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. Verse 8, I will accept Job's prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. So you notice what he called them? They, they were full of folly. They were foolish. Job was wise. They had folly. And so Job was basically their priest. He would accept their sacrifices and pray for them. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 10, we, we read how God restored Job's prosperity and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed Job with twice as many uh, sheep, camels, oxen, and female donkeys as he had in chapter 1. And he also had 10 more children, seven sons, and three daughters. The book of Job ends this way. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Thus ends the book of Job. You may be aware that not everybody likes this ending of the book of Job. They think it ruined the whole story by giving it a happy ending. Well, this is what happened. And so this is what was recorded. But people would say, well, I don't like that because not all stories have a happy ending. Not everybody has their prosperity returned to them. And that's actually a valid point in this life. But what if the book of Job, the the happy ending in the book of Job, points past this life, especially for those of us who are living after the death and resurrection of Jesus? What if the happy ending in the book of Job foreshadows the, the, uh, the experience of someone else who suffered innocently, someone else who experienced catastrophic loss but was vindicated and was exalted to the highest place. What if it points to Jesus Christ? And so unlike Job, Jesus consciously and willingly suffered. And unlike Job, Jesus knew exactly 
why he was suffering. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus came to die for our sins. And that's how we know that, that God is radically for us. Somebody who will give his only son for you, you've got to know he's for you. But like Job, Jesus suffered even though he had not sinned. Like Job, Jesus was wrongly accused and mocked. Like Job, Jesus was misunderstood by his friends. Like Job, Jesus suffered at the hands of Satan. Like Job, Jesus prayed for his enemies on the cross as a priest before God. And like Job, Jesus was vindicated after he suffered. He was raised from the dead. He was enthroned at the right hand of God himself. And what we're told repeatedly in the New Testament is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are therefore in Christ so that whatever happened to him will happen to you. And among other things, it means that when Jesus Christ appears, when he returns, you will be raised bodily from the dead and you will be given a body that is akin to his resurrected body. It is a body that is immortal, imperishable. It is a body that is uniquely suited for the new heaven and the new earth. Everything works. You will see again. You will hear again. You will walk again. You will be given this body that will last for eternity. And you will be given an inheritance that outstrips anything that can be described. And there are some descriptions, but it's things like The meek will inherit the earth. If you're a believer, that's you. Think about inheriting the earth. And so the takeaway from this last section in Job is that as Jesus' disciples, we can look forward to an inheritance greater than anything that we've suffered or lost. This doesn't trivialize our suffering, but it does put it in context. There will be a day when we look, on, look back on this life and any time that we have sought God and feared God and repented from our, our evil ways and we have kept moving toward God, we won't have a single regret at all. And for all of eternity, it will resound to his reputation. God is worthy. He is worthy of our worship, even in the midst of our suffering maybe especially in the midst of our suffering. And so, God, we want to be people that fear you. We want to to learn how to fear you in the midst of our suffering. We thank you that there are people in our midst who have modeled this beautifully in amazing ways. God, I pray for those here today who are in the midst of, of some suffering, and the future is very much in doubt. Pray, God, that you would encourage them. Pray that there would be friends that would come alongside and suffer with them, suffer well. Pray, God, that you would give them the grace to keep pursuing you, to keep fearing you, to keep experiencing you in deeper and deeper ways. God, may we be a people who learn wisdom in the midst of our suffering, and may we find it satisfying beyond measure. We do look forward to the day when we see Jesus face to face. Oh God, until that day, may we be faithful.
In his name we pray, amen.